Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like rhinos, knives, or aardvarks. Or sharks, barks, and larks. Larks is about joking and japes and hijinks. Or car parks, the cutty sark, and harks. Larks <laughs> is about the history of listening. I think we should do the history of listening. However, this is to digress monstrously because we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining, explaining very carefully how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of mountains is in fact all about prejudice, vendetta, elephants, dolphins, the absence of history, freedom and Frankenstein, or that the history of clocks is all about villages in the Pyrenees, the Reformation, as most things are, icebergs, windows, prayers, food, slavery, and Hiroshima. Ooh, very good stuff. Um, ladies and gentlemen, the man not sitting opposite me, we're apart from each other because of this dastardly coronavirus um, he's the whoopee cushion of history. That's what I think he is. He's <laughs> Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. Uh, and the man not sitting opposite me because we haven't dared to get into our broom cupboard shed uh, in the bottom of his garden. Uh, he's across town because of COVID-19. Well, let's just say he is the Groucho Marx of the historical world. Uh, it is the very funny man, the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. Thank you very much, James. Um, thanks for everyone for tuning in again, guys. We are doing part two of the history of laughter. We're going through a bit of a series at the moment of preparing podcasts and then over-preparing massively and realising we've got tonnes to talk about. So we're splitting things up into two. And I hope you're enjoying coming back for a second dose of the history of laughter. Um, the first one we talked about all of the different ways you can think about laughter. We introduced some ideas about uh, the historiography of it. Looked at Keith Thomas's article uh, about laughter in Tudor and Stuart, England. We, we suggested some ideas about gender as well. And I talked about why, as a historian, it's very important to understand the different types of laughter when you are conducting oral history interviews and gave a great example for from someone who'd been interviewing people who are healthcare professionals working in Cuba in the 1960s. It was fascinating, but there's so much more for us to discuss. So we've come back with episode number two, and we are going to be talking about some, some specific examples of um, different ways of thinking about laughter in history. James, why don't you go first? So I'm going to start and I'm going to talk to us about jest books um, from the 16th and 17th century. Now, we talked earlier on in our last episode about Keith Thomas's brilliant article on laughter in Tudor and Stuart, England. And one of the big sources that he used, that he relied upon, was jest books. And jest books are collections of anecdotes, humorous anecdotes or jokes bound together in book form. And they are a, they're a genre of literature uh, which is incredibly popular during the 16th and 17th century. And they're a mixture of verse and prose jokes. They've got roguish heroes. They're a bit like those sort of coney-catching pamphlets uh, that become very popular in the late 16th and 17th century and that basically lead to the rise of the novel. 
Um, but what I want to talk about is I want to talk about them from the perspective of gender. Uh, and I was reading a brilliant book uh, a while ago uh, called um, Better a Shrew Than a Sheep, Women, Drama and the Culture of Jest in Early Modern England by a woman called Pamela Allen Brown. She's an American, uh, American literary scholar. Uh, it's published by Cornell University Press. Um, and it is it is really funny. It's genuinely laugh out loud funny. I remember when I sat in the library uh, reading this and we were talking earlier on about embarrassing laughter and libraries are not the kinds of places where you are supposed to laugh. Uh, but I remember just roaring with laughter uh, at this book and people uh, at the desks around me, uh, you know, looking at me in sort of great horror uh, and, and disbelief. So I think it, it's a brilliant, brilliant book, this. Um, and it studies jesting literature, uh, which she defines really broadly as basically meaning any verbal, gestural or dramatic form that could be used to spur laughter or ridicule. And basically, this isn't just simply jest books, but she looks at a whole range of sources, which is what makes it such a strong and rich book. So it's jest books and it's plays and it's ballads, comic songs, proverbs, woodcuts. So those are image, visual images, rituals, festivities, everyday court, talk and court records. All of this from the Tudor period to the Restoration. Um, and what she's interested in in the book is looking at the way in which the culture of jest, so joking and laughter, shaped early modern women's experiences. Uh, and the plays that they witnessed on stage. And I think, taken together, the book challenges modern-day assumptions that early modern comic culture was exclusively male. You know, so it's not just men. And what the book shows is that women are laugh-getters. In other words, they are humorous, they're funny, they make people laugh, and shows that the laughter of female audiences was sought by writers, balladeers and playwrights, so the kind of plays Shakespeare's putting on, there's an element where he's actually going after laughter among women. There are jokes that are meant to appeal to women and make them laugh. And the book argues for a much closer relationship between the drama of the street, so what goes on day to day, and what you see on the stage, the drama of the stage and the, and the humour that is there. And it's that this is what a very clever sort of element of it, that actually... There's a what she describes as an intertextuality between real life and theatre. In other words, you know, she's seeing examples on the theatre in in the real life uh, court records that she's looking at. So, for example, she identifies there are stock images and stereotypes that were recycled and reused and reperformed and that shaped identity of women um, and jests. Brown argues, functioned as what could be described as cultural scripts that women could use for their own performances. And what she means there is basically there are a series of stereotypes that uh, were used to represent and describe women that you can often see as quite negative. So thinking of women as nagging and as, you know, bossy, uh, sexually aggressive, and that actually these were women were able to use these images themselves to own them and then to apply them in their own in their own life um 
she also argues that despite low levels of female literacy um, and the fact that women are often socially marginalised, that women through jesting could achieve um, moments of agency. So humour and laughter gave them a sense of power. It gave them a sort of tool, a weapon that they could use. Um, and that if you think about the way in which um, jest books are often read, they're often read in a very conservative way. So it's very patriarchal humour. Uh, and they're read alongside sermons and conduct literature that basically you know, constrains and subordinates women. But actually, when you look at this, how do you read these against the grain? How do you capture some degree of female agency from a what is basically a misogynist tale or jest. And one of the strongest elements of the book is actually the way in which she manages to to do this. Um, beyond sort of conventional feminist recuperation, she manages to sort of show um, the, the, the way in which women were able to use these. So, for example, and to quote, um, scenes of female revenge and passages of female sat satire cannot simply be dismissed as products of the male imagination. In other words, she turns it round and reads against the grain um, to show that women's mocking laughter is seen to have operated to censor men in close-knit communities. Jesting culture often applauded the satiric shrew in her exploits against rapists, cuckolds, priests. Female rogues were lauded for their audacity... Jests and japes questioned the ideal of total wifely submission. Better a shrew than a sheep, for example, which is the title. So better to be a shrew and be bold and and you know and shrewish than to be merely a sort of a sheep or a mouse who's timid and just simply follows. Um, and the book is organised by genre and by theme, um, and then goes through a sort of series of situations. So the early chapters deal with the sites of jests and jesting and locate women within those sites, uh, particularly the neighbourhood, show how they, they function in the household and the alehouse. And you can see women, you know, really sort of involved in this very vibrant uh, world of sort of raucous jocularity. And there's sometimes a dark sense of, humour uh, that we can see here which which um which particularly you can see in the alehouse um it is a really really rich book um but i think beyond it the most the most enjoyable part of it is that it is just full of really funny stuff there are a myriad of examples that she's gathered from a wide range of sources that offer a very complex comic culture where humour is scatological, it's sexual, it's vindictive, it's savage, it's whimsical, transient, cathartic, deviant, inverting, oppositional, anti-feminist, misogynist and empowering. And there are a range of rather colourful tales uh, and characters that fill the book's um, pages. Uh, just to give you a couple of examples, there is the brow-beaten wife uh, who's used by her husband as a bed-warming pan, who reaps revenge by soiling the conjugal bed. So basically her husband, her, her husband forced this woman, his wife, to go to bed earlier uh, to basically be his bed-warming pan 
uh, and to warm the bed up for when he arrived. And um, he comes into bed and she has basically defecated in it. Um, and he says, what's that? And she says, ah, it is merely your your bed warming pan having ejected a couple of coals. So the, the, in order to understand the joke, you need to understand the materiality of the bed warming pan. So a bed warming pan would be a, a sort of copper pan on a, on a handle and you would put hot coals in it and then put that into the bed. Um, or there's, there's another example, uh, a, a woman who is physically beaten by her husband uh, tricks him into diving into cold water to save their baby. Oh, oh my, the baby is drowning. It's fallen in the pond. Uh, only to, the man dives in only to discover that the sodden bundle that he thinks is their baby is in fact nothing more than a cat wrapped in a wet blanket. Um, and also the dutiful wife uh, who lets her violent husband burn in the fire into which he'd fallen in a drunken stupor saying tis his house let him lie where he lists so this is a man who routinely goes out to the alehouse gets steaming drunk comes home abuses his wife oh no woman let me lie where i list he, he says to her and then one night comes in stumbles falls into the grate gets set on fire and she just allows him to burn because it's his house and he can do what he wants. So <laughs> taken together, all of these, what all of these add up to is the way in which um, you can read those kinds of jokes as part of, um, as part of a patriarchal code that sees women as, as, um, as downtrodden and subordinate. But also in those three examples that I gave, you've got little sort of glimpses of female agency. Yeah. So it's the way the comp it's the complex way in which and we we talk a lot about how you operate as a historian. And it, this is the complex way in which as a historian you read these examples against the grain. So you try and read although it hasn't been written they haven't been written by women, what you do is you look at them within a as products of a culture where you can ascribe a certain degree of female agency. So there we are. Amazing. And I love the, I love the fact that sort of within those jokes, there are other things that you need to understand, like the warming pan is a very obvious one. But the other one's the cat. They were like, ha ha, isn't this hilarious? It's nothing more than a cat. It's like you've just drowned a cat. What are you doing? <laughs> um, and it was, we, we've, done a, we've done a podcast. It's one of our most popular ones on the history of cats. And there's a very long and interesting history of cruelty to cats. And that fits within that, doesn't it? Does certainly does. Yeah, yeah. It's nothing more than a cat wrapped in a blanket. Full stop. <laughs> <laughs> what? Um, wonderful. I love that. Um, we are. I'm going to take you now on a bit of a, a bit of a rambly tour, uh, which is going to start. It's going to take us from Joaquin Phoenix and the Joker, and we are going to see if I can make it end up where I want it to end up, which is with Rembrandt. And ah. uh, so, so strap yourself in, James. Have you seen the Joker? Uh, I the film. The film. Oh no, I haven't. But I've wanted to. Oh, it's excellent. It is. It is really, really brilliant. 
And uh, for those of you who have seen it, then you'll know um, that it's it's to do with uh, Joaquin Phoenix is Arthur Fleck. He's a failed clown. He's a failed comedian, and he's suffering from mental illness. Society breaks down. He no longer receives the counselling and the medication he needs. And one of the things he stu- he he suffers from is is a pathological laughter. He can't control when he laughs. He laughs in inappropriate situations um and it's it's obviously often very harshly contrasting with the situation he's in there's a wonderful one where he's he laughs laughs in a bus and everyone turns around and looks at him and it is so unbelievably sinister so i wanted to look at this a bit because i thought it was very interesting that it had come out um now you know why why has it come out now and what what is the history of this particular uh, symptom which is can be associated with a variety of different illnesses what is clear um, now is that there that this pathological laughter, not being able to control yourself, is actually common in a wide spectrum of of disorders, um, and a lot of them lead to significant distress for those who suffer from them. But the, the thing I like about this, or what I'm interested in, is that it's not, it is still not completely understood. So often, you know, you'll see something that comes to the forefront of the media, and you think, oh. This, this is here. We must we must know a great deal about this, whatever it is. But in this day, instance, we really don't. But it does have a, a very long history of people trying to get to grips with it. Um, I think it's been such a socially striking symptom when you've got people uncontrollably laughing or crying. And one, another aspect of it is yawning, which I came across as well. And you suggested doing a episode on yawning. I talked about, a little bit about it last time. I came across a description of this woman who who yawned like seven times a minute all day uh, and was was investigated by a Frenchman who wrote up the case. But he also wrote up um, wrote up all sorts of other cases as well, particularly to do with laughter. It also made me think, James, we've done a podcast on the history of the smile where we mm. talk about the Frenchman Guillaume Duchesne, who who links he's trying to get to the bottoms of the emotions linked with the smile. He associates particular smiles with specific muscle groups in the face and and conducts this series of extraordinary um, experiments where he basically electrocutes people in the face. So this is this is part of that broader 19th century study into the history of emotions. And before I go on, let me just thank uh, Dr. Peter Bede, who is professor and consultant neurologist at Trinity College Dublin, who's put me on to some absolutely fascinating articles, one of which is by the Frenchman Olivier Walusinski, who has written a, a general um, discussion about pathological laughter and crying. And it was through that article that I came across uh, the fact that it was Darwin who first, who first in 1872 was, was the person to actually try and understand what's going on here. Um, and, and as I looked through that book, um, here we are, he, he wrote about the pathological side of things. So certain brain diseases as hemiplegia, brain wasting and senile decay have a special tendency to induce weeping. But he's also interested in laughter as well. And uh, he writes about dogs and laughter and he writes about um, uh, chimpanzees and laughter as well. Uh, If a young chimpanzee be tickled, the armpits are particularly sensitive to tickling, as in the case of our children, a more decided chuckling or laughing sound is uttered, though the laughter is sometimes noiseless. This is in his book, The Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals. If you read any Darwin, I would urge you to begin with this. It's absolutely fantastic. 
Dogs, in their expression of fondness, have a slight aversion of the lips and grin and sniff amidst their gambols in a way that resembles laughter. Some persons speak of the grin as a smile, but if it had been really a smile, we should see a similar, though more pronounced, movement of the lips and ears when dogs utter their bark or joy. But this is not the case, although a bark of joy often follows a grin. And he goes on here. uh, Under the opposite emotion of great joy or amusement, as long as laughter is moderate, there is hardly any contraction of the muscles around the eyes, so that there is no frowning. But when peals of loud laughter are uttered with rapid and violent spasmodic expirations, tears stream down the face. So he's particularly interested in hearing this uh, sort of almost contradiction of laughing and crying at the same time. I've more than once noticed the face of a person after a paroxysm of violent laughter and I could see that the orbicular muscles and those running to the upper lip were still partially contracted, which, together with the tear-strained cheeks, gave to the upper half of the face an expression not to be distinguished from that of a child still blubbering from grief. Now, I'm going to go back briefly here to Joaquin Phoenix and the Joker because if I was actually looking not only at his performance but at his... um, audition they filmed his audition and it's extraordinary to look at and he plays with his face he he really manipulates his face and it made me think about the the way that he 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 laughs but it also looks like he's crying at the same time Joaquin Phoenix very famous as a a method actor and he particularly um, studied the peep studied some people some videos of people suffering from pathological laughter to get himself uh, to be able to play the Joker as well as he as he wanted to. Now, so what we've got here is we've got Joaquin Phoenix being a method actor. We're looking at some early nineteenth century descriptions of people suffering from it. There's a, there is a wonderful selection here from Edouard Brissot as well, eighteen ninety five. He's got some images, some photographs of someone suffering from uncontrollable laughter in three phases here very straight face bit more of a grin and then this man rocking back with his head thrown back and his mouth open his eyes all crinkly um and he would he looks like he's having fun but uh he is not in control of his body which brings me james to the final part of this this trilogy which we'll all link together i promise you uh, i want to talk about rembrandt um, who is the uh, greatest artist, Dutch artist of the 17th century. I think some people would claim he's the greatest artist ever because a wonderful painting was recently discovered of Rembrandt. It's a self-portrait of Rembrandt laughing. Um, originally, a, a print of this existed and it was always known to be associated with a lost Rembrandt painting, but it turned up in a provincial auction in the UK um, and it was supposed to be, um, you know, inspired by Rembrandt or in the school of Rembrandt until it was identified as the actual painting that had been lost from which this print was taken. It's wonderful. Uh, you've got Rembrandt half length from the waist up. He's got an elbow pointing towards us. But most brilliantly of all, his head is thrown back, um, just like I was describing from this 19th century photograph. His face is brightly illuminated. He's wearing a curious gorget around his neck, a type of armour. But he's a young man. It was painted in 1628 um, in Leiden, so before he moved to Amsterdam, where he spent the majority of his life. And he's trying to establish himself as as an artist, a portrait artist, worthy of, of anyone who's got the money. And he's proving to people looking that he can draw, he can capture emotions. And the interesting thing here is it's, you know, 
I talked last week very briefly about uh, a self-portrait of someone yawning. Here you've got a self-portrait of someone laughing, and that is very, very unusual indeed to actually have a, a, an artist painting himself somehow overcome by emotion. And the interesting thing here is he's not just laughing, but it's also the most detailed self-portrait that survives of Rembrandt. It's the first one that he really, really focused on. There are a few kind of loose sketches, but this one is extraordinarily detailed for the, every kind of tiny aspect of his face. What he's doing here is he's demonstrating to the viewer his ability to paint emotions. But what historians think he was actually doing was also he was painting himself in the mirror. And to to be able to... Um, to do this, to, to almost like a shop window on his own ability. He was, in effect, method acting. He didn't want to paint anyone else laughing. He wanted to paint himself laughing. And so when you look at this picture, you're actually you're almost looking at a reflection of Rembrandt. And he was sitting there painting himself in a mirror. So it's also, weirdly, a, um, a part of a, of a much longer history of method acting. And it just so happens that he's laughing um, and that brings us all the way back to Joaquin Phoenix and him uh, doing method acting and and learning to laugh in a certain type of way for the film The Joker. Very good. Very good. Very good. <laughs> Very enjoyable. That's a sort of intellectual gymnastics there, Sam. I, I'm going to go and have a lie down now. Yes, I think you should. <laughs> I mean, it reminds me of the, of what we wrote about in our book, Histories of the Unexpected, On the Smile. Yeah. And we look there at representations of people smiling. And actually, if you look back at those, a lot of those pictures, they are not just smiling, but they are laughing. Yeah. And one of the things is in the Ancien Regime, so in other words, before the French Revolution, um, smiling or laughing was associated with rustics, harlots, the insane and the mad. So the demonic. You see uh, that but, particularly from art, don't you? If you, you look see at, that particularly uh, 70s, from art. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, and we looked there at um, at um, uh, Dirk van Baburen's depiction of a prostitute in the Procuress, uh, Franz Hals Malbab, which depicts a sort of crazy uh, woman with a tutor beer tankard. Uh, with an open lid and a raucous open mouth, sort of what looks like a laugh there. Uh, and historians have understood her to be an alcoholic or mentally ill. And then, of course, famously, um, the picture of the laughing violinist by Gerrit van Honthorst, uh, a Dutch painter, uh, which was painted in 1624. It's outstanding. Depicts... Everyone, everyone Google laughing violinist if you're anywhere near a computer. It's brilliant, um, which shows this sort of this guy in a sort of feathered hat uh, with a violin tucked under his arm, making a sort of very um, sexual gesture uh, with his arms so or a clenched fist, uh, very sort of unmistakably uh, phallic. And it makes it makes even more sense when you find out that it was meant to be hung in the gallery as a companion piece to a young girl counting money. Uh, which is a young, smiling courtesan uh, with a low-cut top, uh, with a wonderful sort of feathered headdress and baroque earrings, um, and so it, it's um, so it's meant to actually communicate with those with those two. Anyway, that's just a small aside. What I was actually going to end with um, was with a, a jest book. Uh, we've talked throughout these two episodes about uh, jest books and how historians have used them. And I just wanted to share some with you. And one of the most famous 
jest books from the 17th century is a book called A Banquet of Jests or Change of Cheer. And it was published in 1636 in London, printed by M. Flesher uh, for Richard Royston dwelling in Ivy Lane. And at the first part, being a collection of modern jests, witty leers, pleasant taunts and merry tales. And I've just got a little smorgasbord of these to share with you. The first one is a jest on a court lady. A court lady at dinner, amongst diverse gallants, speaking of her age, said she was forty years old, when presently one of them rounded his next neighbour in the year. It would require, saith he, a stronger faith than I have in me to believe this. But he made answer, I must needs believe her, for I have heard her say so any time these ten years. So a jest you know, about a woman, a woman's age. Uh, <laughs> one of my favourites here, and I promised this earlier on, was a gentleman usher that let a fart. A gentleman usher sent on a serious message to a great lady and having a long tale to deliver in the midst of his speech, not able to contain it, he, <laughs> he let a great fart, which was heard all over the chamber. At which the ladies, <laughs> I'm fr I'm afraid I'm just corpsing here. Oh dear, James, you're so puerile. At which the ladies, gentlewomen, and chambermaids began to tee-hee and laugh. When presently one of them, by stifling in her breath because she could not laugh too loud, chanced to do the like, which he, <laughs> observing abruptly, broke his discourse and. <laughs> Dear, and turning to them, said, Marry, young gentlewoman, <laughs> you do well. I know it is, it is for your ease. I beseech you, let it go in order round, and when it shall come again to my turn, I shall make proof what I can do. <laughs> it was a sort of circular farting game. Yeah, yeah. Okay, right. the, uh, next one is um, one with a great nose. A gentleman with an extraordinary great nose, was walking along Cheapside when an unhappy prentice boy meeting him made a sudden stand, at which the gentleman, musing, made a stand likewise, and asked him why he did not keep his way. The lad answered, Sir, I would gladly pass by you, but I cannot, for your nose. The gentleman, loath to be too much observed, or occasion of any tumult in the street, with his finger, he put his nose on the one side and said, Now, youth, may you freely pass. The way lies plain before you. <laughs> I thought that was a very quite, quite a sweet one about yeah. a man with an enormous nose. And my final one is in, in verse uh, of a new married woman that called her husband cuckold. In other words, a cuckold is somebody who has been cheated upon by his wife. A wench new married within three days' space did call her husband cuckold to his face. Her husband taking it in great disdain thereof did to her mother straight complain. Her mother rages. Oh, base drab, she says. What? Call thy husband cuckold in three days? Thy father hath been cuckold tills well known these twenty years. Yet I durst ne'er I tell him. 
you get it? Yes, yes. Very Excellent. good. I enjoyed that very much. Excellent. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to our podcast on the history of laughter. And we've got all sorts of goodies coming your way. Do please follow me on Twitter at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow the podcast itself at Unexpected Pod. Please check us out online at historiesoftheunexpected.com. Everything we have done in the past, you can check out our own history and we promise you there will be more coming your way. But thanks so much for listening, guys. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. And I hope this little, this little series of podcasts on laughter has brought you a little bit of merriment in these dark times. Stay well, everyone, and happy Christmas for when Christmas comes. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.